Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. All right, so Jay, you know, it's been a little while since we've done some listener mail, taking listener comments, so I thought we would uh, we would do that today. And so uh, if you're ready to get started, we will just let's start right let's up. Let's hear from the people, yeah. All right. So uh, let's see here. In response to our discussion of women's reproductive rights in the wake of the Women's March, uh, Allie made this comment on our Twitter feed. She said, I like politics, guys. But I think it's poor to listen to two men talk about abortion in such an unnuanced and traditional way. If you don't have a woman on to talk about it, at least quote a couple of them. Your views, are, your views were tired and uninspiring. You have the responsibility to do better. So, yeah, well, you know, then, you know not everyone's going to say you guys are awesome and everything you do is wonderful. But I, I understand, I think, where, where Allie's coming from. And, and there were... I wanted to feature this this comment because there were a number of listeners who had similar things to say, and and I think and my response on Twitter was in part uh, I assume they were talking maybe more about your views than mine, but even on my on my side of things, you know, I, I agreed with Allie in part. I didn't get into a lot of nuance, and I kind of painted with uh, broad strokes. And in part, I explained, and I think this is not a justification, but it's sort of just kind of how things are in that, you know, we, we did, I think that week four stories in 40 something minutes. And so we didn't really have uh, the time to go into a lot of nuance and detail. And certainly there are a lot of, there is a lot of nuance. There is a lot of detail. And I think it was Allie or someone else who pointed me to a great segment, a, a, a full length segment on pantsuit politics, where they, uh, uh, where Sarah and Beth interviewed somebody. And yeah, I think, that wasn't what we were really trying to do. And so we didn't do that, but absolutely. And I think it, you know, might be a good idea if I could bring on a guest to, to talk about that in much greater detail. And so I appreciate the comment and I hope that my explanation of why we weren't as nuanced as you'd find in say a 20, 30, 40, 50 minute discussion on that is, uh, is uh, a reasonable one. So Jay, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I'm, I th- that's kind of my sense of where we are, were too. I mean, I, I think when we put that show together, we weren't saying, hey, let's sit down and have a discussion about abortion and abortion policy. It was more the, uh, here's, you know, here's the news, here's the Women's March, uh, here's what Trump said about it. And looking more at the the politics of how these things uh, fall out as opposed to the the substantive uh, debate at its core and sort of talking about generally what's going to, and I think, I think my point was, uh, there's probably not going to be much movement, uh, one way or the other, uh, on on these issues uh, from a constitutional Supreme Court standpoint. Uh, so, um, no, I I I, I get it. Uh, I, I also would would throw out there. I mean, I I typically um, uh, cringe adverse to the idea that you know if you're not of of this gender, or this race, or this group, or whatever, you can't talk about the issue. Uh, because I think that makes it impossible uh, for for our country to talk about issues. I, I understand having the various perspe- varying perspectives, and I think that's that's good. And and uh, we try to do that, and I think we'll try to do that more in the future. Absolutely. All right, moving on. Alex writes, per your last episode, uh, you and Jay briefly touched on gerrymandering, and Jay commented that there wasn't necessarily a good way to do it because it's done politically or 
the people who would be commissioned to do it would be appointed by politicians. Um, and so Alex actually uh, wrote in with a recommendation. He says, I would recommend 538's gerrymandering project, as I think it does a great job of showing the different ways gerrymandering takes effect and proposals to solve it. And actually, I, you know, we've, I, we've, we've, we've uh, posted that before. Yeah. I think, and so I, I think we have, we're going to post it again because I think it is really a great uh, resource and they have all kinds of stuff up in there now. It's always expanding. And so we'll put a link uh, up there on that because I really do think if you're in, interested in getting an in-depth kind of view of gerrymandering, that is a great place to start. And so we will make sure we put that up on the show notes. If we hadn't done it before, we'll do it again. So thank you very much, Alex. We appreciate you pointing that out. All right. Um, before we move on to our next listener, we would like to thank our sponsor. And this is our, uh, our final sponsor on our ad-supported model of the show. So uh, our, final, our, our, our first sponsor today, our last sponsor today, our final sponsor is DaVinci. You know, in today's competitive business landscape, Having the right address is critical to the success of your business. It literally could mean the difference between closing a deal or closing your doors. That's why you need an address to impress, which is where DaVinci comes in. DaVinci makes it incredibly easy to select the perfect business address. They give you access to thousands of high-profile business addresses in upper-scale office locations in all 50 states. Addresses like Rockefeller Center, the Empire State Building, the Willis Tower, and lots more across the country. Now, a business address from DaVinci not only helps boost your company's image, but it doesn't break the bank. Great addresses start at just $50 a month. Go to davinciwork.com TPG, and for a limited time, you'll get 50% off your first purchase. That's davinciwork.com TPG. Terms and conditions apply. See davinciwork.com TPG for details. Okay, so moving on, our next listener question comes from Stephen, who asks, do you follow politics in other parts of the world? Uh, what are your thoughts about the EU? Can you see why the UK voted to leave, and how would each of you have voted had you lived there? Well, uh, Stephen, I'll start with this one. Okay. I, normal, I, I certainly try to follow politics in other parts of the world, though the world's a big place. Um, and so, admittedly, I don't follow it nearly as closely as I follow U.S. politics. I'll, I'll glance and read through some headlines. So, I certainly am not qualified to make any sort of grand pronouncements about the world. The, the type of politics that I will follow that's international in scope tends to be political issues that involve the United States in some you know, big, important way. So, or if there's like a huge issue, something like the Brexit vote, that sort of thing, yeah, I'll follow that. But as a general rule, I would say I follow it like sort of a casually interested person, basically. Jay, uh, how about you? Yeah, I'm I'm probably in the same boat. Uh, I mean, back in my back in the day, uh, my my undergrad and, and you know recent undergrad days, it was sort of a uh, I, I was much more in depth and would read stuff like like foreign policy and and uh, the Economist all the time and uh, really wanted to have a handle on what was going on in the French Parliament and I, you know I mean, <laughs> right. and, and a lot of it was really just sort of maybe undergrad pretension. Um, but uh, I, I don't as much anymore, mostly just because of time. And and I think the, the realization, though, I think what's what's important is uh, for for our listeners, well, for uh, for everyone, um, is that 
in any given country, there is so much going on internally. And unless you're really focused on it, uh, it it's difficult to, to, to really, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess really have a strong command of the facts and where you ought to be coming from. Um, and, and that's, that's, I don't know, I suppose it's unfortunate, but it's just a, a fact that, uh, it, unless you are a, a scholar or, or someone who works in, in this field and, uh, has a reason to keep up on on the, the real inside baseball um, or inside cricket or, or or soccer or whatever the hell they play over there. Um, uh, sort of sort of goings on. Uh, you're you're not going to be able. You know your 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 understanding will be sort of superficial. So I think, um, yeah, I'm I'm in the same same boat. I, I read the you know the national uh, press that we get here, but I don't really dig deeper uh, in into um, uh, other countries. And and as for the the second part of Stephen's question, uh, I certainly can see why the why uh, the UK voted to leave uh, the, the the EU, and uh, I would not have voted in, in that way. I believe, based on what I know, I, I think I probably would have voted to leave the EU. Uh, and again, I'd I'd reserve my judgment because my my view was from you know three thousand miles away, um, and and not hearing the arguments there. But but my sense is the uh, the surrendering of, of sovereignty to a an, an elected bureaucracy is is something that's that's problematic, and uh, I think uh, uh, Britons are are certainly capable of governing themselves. They have in the past, and I'm confident we'll be continue to to do so in the future. There you go. And I think safe to say that both of us, had we actually been voting in the matter or covering it, uh, you know, would have would certainly have done a lot more uh, research and dug a lot more deeply than, than, than we had, but I wouldn't be surprised if we'd come to sort of similar conclusions. All right, um, moving on, Melinda emailed me to comment on our recent discussion of President Trump's racism after his, uh, I don't know, the shithole or shithouse comment, um, depending on who you talk to, concerning certain non-white countries. She writes, a lovely show on your part. Jay's denial is just complicity at this point. He is right that Trump is vulgar and crude, but he is also racist. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. You can be a vulgar, crude racist. I remember hearing my best friend's family tell me Trump's accusations about Obama weren't indications of his racism. He was just being a jerk. Those same people still refuse to use the word racist, mostly because they voted for him, and admitting to voting for a racist is very troubling. It is almost amusing to hear people work so hard to try to make excuses for why he says such things when the reason is obvious. I liken it to people who still refuse to admit the Civil War was about slavery. They will say it was about states' rights. My answer is always yes, it was about the states' rights to have slaves. Oh well, thanks for a great show and your absolute sensitivity in this matter. So, Jay, um, what do you think? I'm obviously well, much more directed I, you to know, you. I, I, yeah, they usually are. Um, I, I stand by my comments, and actually, there's something that was really uh, a good piece written by uh, Scott Adams of Dilbert fame uh, that ran in the Wall Street Journal. I want to say um, Wednesday or Thursday of last week, so probably a week a week ago from when you're hearing this show. Um, but about uh, uh, cognitive or con confirmation bias uh, and the Trump the Trump racism question. That if you sort of look at certain pieces of evidence, uh, you would say uh, he is racist. And if you come from the, the where you were coming from, uh, sort of the Trump body of work, uh, as it were, um, that you would have to interpret the um, 
the shithole country comment as as being evidence of racism. Uh, and he he makes a, a great uh, counter argument, and, and I'll make some of it. I don't have it in, in front of me, but you know, for example, uh, he questioned uh, President Obama's uh, birth and birth certificate, and you know, was he really born in the United States? Um, well, for one thing, okay. Well, also, so did Hillary Clinton, uh, if you recall. Uh, but more importantly, President Trump also took issue with Ted Cruz uh, and his birthplace, and whether he would be a uh, legitimate uh, presidential candidate because he was born in Canada. Um, yes, he would have been, but that's that's a, a different point. But the, the, if the argument is Trump is a jerk and will use whatever he's got to attack an opponent, I, I would think the evidence favors yes. He he did that with Cruz. Uh, he did it uh, with with uh, Obama too. And race is not the factor there. The factor is it's an opponent of Trump, and he's going to say whatever he wants. Um, uh, same with some of these other, gosh, I wish I had it in front of me, but uh, I, I, I simply can't come around to the idea that, um, you know, if, it's one of those, if you're going to, to decide that uh, President Trump is a racist, uh, then, then you sort of already made those, those, that decision and everything else would just build into uh, buttress that, and you would avoid looking at, at other evidence. Now, I mean, let's let's look it works at the other way too. Uh, what's, what's what's what has President Trump's record been um, before he was running for president uh, on race? Well, as far as we can tell, it was it was okay. I don't think there was there have been any major complaints against the Trump Corporation. I think he hired plenty of uh, minorities. Uh, I think they were they were, you know treated well. At least we haven't really heard. Uh, uh, much to the contrary, and I expect we would have uh, if that were the case. Um, so I, I, that's that's I'm I'm not going to simply say uh, uh, Trump is a, a racist based on some of those statements. And also, if you look at and we talked about this, I mean the, the whole shithole country um, uh, statement. Uh, yes, it's vulgar. Yes, it's it's uh, undiplomatic. Uh, yes, it's offensive. Uh, but is that the Trump vernacular for saying? Uh, places that are, are failed states where people don't want to go. Uh, every time there is a, a chance of a Republican being elected and you have the various Hollywood uh, literati who pledge to move to a different country, uh, none of them pledge that they're going to move to Haiti if, if uh, the opponent is elected. It's usually somewhere nice like France or Canada um, or, or, or even Norway. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think there's, a, there's a reasonable argument that can be made that, look, the, there are a lot of places out there that are uh, failed uh, or failing states, uh, and and the, the, the economic and uh, uh, cultural issues in integrating people from those failed states into our country are much different than those uh, with, with bringing someone over, say, from Europe. Well, you know, and so, I will say that there are a couple of things that we can definitely agree on here, Jay. Um, number one, we can both agree that uh, President Trump is a jerk. Uh, obnoxious jerk. Another thing we can agree on, and we have agreed on in the past, is that while he may or may not be a racist, you and I disagree on that. Or I'll say, I believe it's, he is. You not, believe it's not? It's not helpful that he right. makes these statements. Right. You. You. I would say allow I, him to be portrayed as a racist. Yeah. You. You certainly believe that, or I believe certainly that he is a racist. You believe, I would say, that you don't have enough evidence to reach that conclusion, which I think is based on what you've laid out, is a, is a fair, is a reasonable argument. But what we both agree on is that what matters the most, whether or not he is or isn't a racist, is what are his policies and how do they affect 
people of, you know, not just minorities, but people of all color. And that's what we try to focus on, of course, as much as possible in the show. Yeah. And I should I should also add for those who didn't listen back during the election, I did not vote for Donald Trump. Um, uh, so I, I've, I've, it's not a thing of I've got some sort of vested uh, uh, interest in in defending him. Um, so right, no, not 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 at all. You, you're not a, you've never been a big Trump fan, certainly. Okay, moving on. Uh, Rishi writes, "Dear Dr. Baranowski and Mr. Carson, I am a university student and have been a dedicated fan of the Politics Guys for a while. There are a lot of aspects of the podcast that I enjoy greatly, but my favorites might be how often you two disagree respectfully." and how you always make an effort to understand the opposing point of view. I have two questions to ask, one more serious than the other, and I would appreciate it so much if you two could answer them for me. Okay, his first question. Outside of your own podcast, do you have any recommendations on unbiased or respectful fact-based political podcasts to listen to? I'm a political podcast junkie and currently listen to Up First from NPR, Potomac Watch from the Wall Street Journal, and Abe Lincoln's Top Hat from the last podcast network. I enjoy these quite a bit, but each has its flaws. Um, I'm looking for new podcasts to listen to and would love any recommendations. Well, I guess this one's pretty much... I, I listen You're probably to, better, better than that than me. Yeah. Okay, well, I have a few that I listen to on a semi-regular to regular basis. One is uh, uh, KCRW's Left, Right, and Center. Uh, it, they do kind of a similar thing that Jay and I do, but just not as good. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> in part, well, in part... This this actually this show was actually the one that kind of got me to to call up Jay and get in contact with Jay and say I think we should do our own thing. This is back in late 2014, early 2015, and because it's a, it's a great concept, I thought. But the problem was is the guy they had on the right was just kicking the butt of the guy they had on the left, and I wanted to do something about it. So I still think it's really unbalanced in that sense. But I, I think it's maybe worth checking out. Um. Another show that does something very much like what we do and does a great job of it is uh, Pantsuit Politics. Uh, and we actually, a while back, did sort of a host swap sort of thing uh, where, where I talked with uh, Beth and Jay talked with Sarah, um, and two hosts there. Another one I'd recommend is NPR as a politics show, though it's much more politics than policy-oriented, a little too politics-y for me. Um, and finally... I listen to all the time. Uh, I listen to uh, Econ Talk with, uh, with Russ, Russ Roberts. I think that's really great. It's a very conservative-oriented thing, but fascinating show. Uh, I listen, I, well, I won't say I listen every week to Vox's uh, The Weeds pol- Policy Podcast because it, it's a lot, well, it's a lot better show when Ezra Klein isn't on. Um, <laughs> it's weird. Well, I'd imagine. Ezra Klein... <laughs> Just is I, he's a super smart guy. He knows a lot of policy. But number one, he seems to feel like this obligation to drop f bombs whenever he can. I guess to just show how this cool and street cred. Tough. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I don't know. That that's kind of how it feels to me. It feels so false and fake. But there you go. He likes to do that. Um, uh, and it doesn't sound tough at all. But but anyway, when when uh, it's just, I think Sarah Cliff and, and, and Matt and Glacius, they do, they do a really good job, especially Sarah, who I think is probably the least partisan of all of them. Sarah's stuff is always, to my mind, worth listening to when she writes a lot of great stuff on Vox.com. I, I try to follow her a lot. And then finally, Ezra Klein has his own podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. Um, you know, and when he brings on, but every once in a while, Ezra Klein will bring on a conservative guest, and it's almost always a great show. 
more often than not, they'll bring on some liberal guests and they'll talk about how just, we're two seconds away from complete annihilation and the sky is falling Armageddon, that sort of thing. And those shows, I just kind of roll my eyes. It's, it's just liberals talking to each other and complete echo chamber stuff. But he'll bring on the occasional conservative. He'll be like, wow, this is awesome stuff. So I would recommend the shows where he brings on a conservative and they happen every once in a while. Okay. Now, I, I actually, this is me. Should I make a true confession? I really don't listen to, to many podcasts. Well, you know, you um, have us. I mean, this you is, know, this is enough for me. There um, you go. That, that yeah. should be enough, I think. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the second, Rishi's second question. You two both seem to lead happy, happy and healthy lives and enjoy what you do. We got him fooled, Jay. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> now for me, I'm wondering still what exactly I would like to do with my life. Thus, my question would be, how does one correctly pick a career? As for me, I've recently been admitted to medical school, and I'm certain that after medical school, I want to serve as a flight surgeon in the U.S. Air Force. However, after the Air Force, I'm not sure what to do with my life. Should I try to enter politics and policy work? Should I return to being a regular doctor? Should I go back to school for an MBA and work in finance or at a pharmaceutical company? How should I choose? Thank you so much for reading and for your time. I'll always be a big fan of your podcast, and I'm always recommending it to any friends who show an interest in learning more about politics and policy. So, Jay, do you have some life advice from Varishi, some career advice? Uh, one word, plastics. <laughs> um, if, Jay if dates himself with that reference, obviously. That, but, That's even before uh, Jay's time, in the yes, graduate. Um, yeah, it's even before Mike and I's time, but we're both sort of old souls. Uh, but look it up. Um, no, uh, to, to the extent you're turning to us for, for uh, uh, life advice, uh, one, uh, while I'm, I'm flattered, it, it, quite honestly, it sounds like you've got your life a whole lot more together than, than, what, than what Mike or I do. So uh, I'm not sure you're asking the, the, the right uh, people. But, um, you know, my, in my sense, if the question goes to should you, you know, move forward in some sort of, you know, running for office or, or political role, um, is you know there's a lot to, to timing and a lot to building groundwork uh and I, and I think a lot of times one of the best things you can do is is just get a job and do it well for a while um and it sounds as if you're you're doing that and, and getting the education and the background you need um and and you know sort of keep an eye out and and stay involved in your community there's a lot of things you can do uh that are are short of um you know, running for office, you know, it could be involved in uh, local charitable organizations, professional organizations, uh, those types of things that keep you sort of wired into the community. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in a, in an unofficial capacity. And quite honestly, that's a lot of, that's a lot of where the, the governing work and, and a lot of what are the great things that, that happen uh, in our country happens because of these sort of uh, voluntary, uh, you know, non-government associations. So I think that's a good thing to do. Um, uh, you know, somebody else once, I, I don't know, Mike, maybe, maybe you can, you can jump in cause you're more of the, the academic sense than the, uh, well, I, I would have, uh, uh, my best, my best advice to you would be to, uh, to Google something, believe it or not, to Google micro life advice. Um, I don't know some of you maybe have heard of Mike Rowe. He's a guy who used to do a show called Dirty, Job Dirty Guys, Jobs. Yeah. And I think his response to a listener who asked him for life advice was, was great. And it's very much against this whole kind of commencement speaker, follow your dreams, that kind of thing. And Mike Rowe's advice was essentially kind of, I think, boiled down was sort of 
kind of what Jay, what, what get you a, said. Get a damn job. Yeah. And, and <laughs> find something that find something that matters and work hard at doing well and try not to find the, the perfect job that meets you, you know, exactly and fulfills you as the fulfillment comes in working hard at work worth doing. And I think there's, you know, something to be said for that. So I think that's what, when occasionally students ask me that, that's my advice is to listen to Mike Rowe because Mike Rowe is very wise in these ways as far as I'm and, concerned. And understanding, yeah, you're not, you're not going to love your job every day. Um, and that's, that's why they call it work. Uh, you know, I think there's, uh, but, but yeah, find something that, uh, that you like at least and, and, uh, do well at it. And, you know, I've also in, in my career sort of found what I want to do kind of by a process of illumination, uh, that you, you know, sort of start time one route and you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Can't do that. Can't do that. And, and you sort of, uh, you know, arrive to the, to, to where you want to be and ought to be. Uh, by sort of eliminating the things that you you won't or can't do. Yeah. So there you go. And, and again, I just like Jay, I, I am flattered that you would that, that you would ask and, and thank you for that. So all right, uh moving on, and we're gonna do something a little different here with the rest of the show. Uh, a while back I got an email from someone named Todd Feinberg. I'd never heard of Todd before, but he mentioned that uh, he actually was a a radio guy. In fact, he hosts a show on WTIC News Talk 1080 in Hartford, Connecticut, and he does a podcast called Harvard Lunch Club. It's a conservative politics podcast. And he said, you know, I I listen to your show. and I think you're so wrong about so many things that it got me upset. And I wanted to talk to you on on my on my radio show. And I thought, well, that sounds you know, interesting. I'd be happy to do it. And so I went on. Uh, I went on a show and talked to Todd. And and basically, I was totally unprepared the, the first time. And I feel like it was. I, I was pretty sure it was awful. Uh, but he invited me on again. He said, you know, because I told him, well, I started out actually as a conservative, far to the right of Jay. And over the course of my, you know, 20 something, 30 something years, I guess now at this point, I became who I am now, kind of a, a center left sort of person that I am today. And he thought it'd be interesting to talk about how that, how and why. What went wrong. Yeah, exactly. That's how he put it. What went wrong. And so I went on and and we did that. And I thought uh, listeners might be interested in hearing about sort of my ideological journey. And so what we'll do now is we'll play that. Now I edited out the news and traffic break because I didn't really think you'd care what the you know news and traffic in Hartford was at that point. But aside from that, pretty much just unedited what I talked to with uh, what I talk about with Todd Feinberg. So uh, uh, here we go. How are you, Michael? I'm doing just fine. How about you? I'm rocking and I'm rolling both at the same time. <laughs> well, that's great. So uh, the I thought you had um, told me that you used to be a rational person, i.e. a political conservative, and you switched sides. And I wanted you just to get um, the audience uh, revved up. I thought you could describe how that happened. Well, you know, I wasn't just a conservative. I was a a serious conservative. I founded the Young Americans for Freedom chapter at my college. I interned for the Heritage Foundation. And in fact, the first four presidents I voted for were Republicans. So I was I was all in. Starting with which one? Uh, Starting with George H.W. Bush twice, Bob Dole once and George W. Bush in 2000. Wow. Yeah. And what happened? Well, you know, I, I, you asking me that question really got me to think about what did happen. And I think what happened really are three things happened. The world changed, the parties changed, and I changed. 
All right, that makes sense, but it sounds complicated. Well, you know, it's... Let's start with the world. Okay. How does the world change? <laughs> well, the biggest thing that happened, and, and I, uh, some listeners might be old enough to remember this, is the Cold War ended, and that was a huge deal. You know, uh, the Berlin Wall falls in 89, the Soviet Union ends in 91, and I really thought that Ronald Reagan and the Republicans were far more right, or correct, if you will, on this issue of fighting communism than the Democrats ever were. And that was a huge part of why I thought the Republican Party was my home. And, and so that, that was a major deal for me. Okay. And, and that, um, it, it was something about that, the clarity. One of the interesting things about the Cold War was it made politics and international politics so simple. There was such clarity. Like, we were clearly the good guys, yeah. and they represented the side of evil. And that left, uh, that allowed us to leave nuances uh, on the side of the road. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it, was, it was a very clear, a much more clear time. And then that ended. And then all of a sudden, there, there was that one big thing that wasn't there drawing me to the Republican Party. But the second thing that happened is that I think both parties changed. Uh, you know, starting in the mid-1990s, Newt Gingrich kind of led the charge to take the Republican Party back from the Democrats in Congress and, and more toward the right. And, and I really feel that that from the mid-90s on, that new Republican Party sort of led the way in what I would say is over-deregulation. And I felt, especially in terms of huge giveaways to big business and the finance industry, and that just drove me Nuts. Not only that, but they, they instituted these huge tax cuts. Okay, fine. But combine that with massive spending. And I found myself saying, what in the heck ever happened to, to my fiscally responsible Republican Party? And I didn't have an answer for that question. Well, I, I think that uh, that question remains unanswered. Yeah, a exactly. And I, 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 I guess the uh, I guess the only thing we could say is that they've decided for competitive reasons to join the Democrats in not worrying about how irresponsibly they spend. Yeah. And, and I think if you're combining, you know, the, the whole thing on the Democrats used to be, right, the tax and spend Democrats, and that's unsustainable, certainly. And I agree with that. But I would say even worse than that is borrow and spend. And that's what the Republican Party has become, at least parts of it. And I, that really just turned me off the party in a big way. But if you listen to left-wing economists, they'll tell you that, we are such a powerful economic force that it's of no consequence how much we overspend, that we can always just print more money. Yeah, and that's, that's, just, that's just simply wrong. Those economists who are saying that, I think, are just, are just nuts. I mean, certainly it's true that right now we're in a position where the world is willing to loan us money at incredibly low rates. But part of that is, is our past history of strength and stability. But that's changing. Another part of it, too, is you got to remember our single biggest creditor uh, is, is, uh, is China. And, of course, China is doing that for internal reasons of its own, and that's starting to change. So we can't count on this happening indefinitely. The era of easy money is going to end sometime, and we should be preparing for it now. All right. So you are, so far you haven't said anything that really aligns you with the Democrats, and you're, you're uh, maligning Paul Krugman, who's the backbone of the, uh, the left's uh, vision of how the economy works. So I, I'm a little confused. We're talking with Michael Baranowski, who's a professor of political science and uh, criminal justice at Northern Kentucky University. He hosts a podcast called The Polit Politics Guys. 
and we will take a break and continue the conversation. Michael Baranowski is a professor of political science, and he went through an evolution from being a devout Republican to being a devout Democrat. And it just seems like such a horrible mistake, uh, Michael. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to save you from this, but I, I don't really feel a handle there. It just it seems like it's kind of an identity shift for you that you couldn't bear the, the thought of aligning yourself with Newt Gingrich, so you switch over to the other side. Well, you know, I, I said that both parties change, and the Democrats finally, finally started moving a little more toward the center, because those 70s and 80s Democrats were way too liberal for me, and there are still elements in the party that I think are way too far out there, your, your Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren types and so forth. So while the Republicans moved away from me, the Democrats started to move toward me. And, but not just that. On, on a number of issues, I became more libertarian, like on reproductive rights and drug laws. And, and that all of a sudden started to put me out of touch with a lot of Republicans. I, I became uh, somewhat less religious. You know, I was raised a Catholic. I was an altar boy the whole nine yards and so forth. And, and, and that changed for me by the time I was out of graduate school. And so the increasing religious influence in the Republican Party became a bit more off-putting. Basically, I feel like my party transformed underneath my feet and the party that used to be far too left for me all of a sudden became a more viable option for me. Well, that, but that was 25 years ago or 20 years ago. Now we're looking at the energy in the Democratic Party being extreme leftism. How I know. About that? I, I am not happy about that. I think that is a complete wrong turn for the party. And I just, I just do a face plant whenever I see that because I think that's totally tone deaf, out of touch with what real Americans want. You know, I, I don't think it's that difficult on a fundamental level. What I want, I think, is what most Americans probably want, right? A government that protects our interests around the world, promotes freedom, takes care of people who through no fault of their own aren't able to take care of themselves, that encourages competition, and that has a light regulatory touch in, in markets that function well. And they don't want crony capitalism. They don't want big business influencing policy instead of going out and innovating, making better products. I mean, can't every reasonable person get behind that? I don't know why not. Well, I, I think you're right that in the um, bizarre alignments that occur in a binary political system that people align with the one that feels the party that feels most appropriate to them. And what they're really looking for in terms of results might be the, the merging of the two parties, which might be why we do toggle back and forth from Democrats to Republicans, because uh, we don't trust either one of them to meet our needs. I wonder, you know, my biggest complaint with Democrats, besides I think now what the party represents is anti-Americanism, that, that there is a desire to dismantle uh, the American system. And if not dismantle, they are taking it apart. By, they've expanded the federal government to a level where it is 180 degrees from what our system called for, that the founders understood that if there was to be liberty, there couldn't be a big central government because government is the most dangerous special interest group there is. And the Democrats, from their business model, which has to do with chopping up voters into different groups based on their minority status, and then glorifying that minority status, and then giving them, paying them special benefits using tax dollars in order to hold their loyalty, that that has rigged our electoral system, that 
the alignment with unions uh, it, it, at the state level in particular with uh, public sector workers has destroyed the state of Connecticut financially and other states where they can't even function anymore. And I, how do you deal with that, uh, combined with the fact that minorities get such a bad life living in the urban areas that Democrats control? How do, you, uh, how do you go to sleep at night with a comfortable conscience with the way minorities' lives are ruined through their devotion to the Democratic Party? Well, I think I think identity politics is another dead end that uh, too many people on the far left of my party are, are pushing, and I think that's completely the the wrong way to go. And I, you know, you you raise some Michael, important... it's not the far left. Well, that's I... <laughs> the business model the Democrats have been following for decades. Well, I think that there are certainly a lot of the loudest ones who get the most press. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think even more important to me, a bigger sellout, a bigger thing that causes me to not to not sleep at night to the extent I don't is how how big corporate interests are just stealing from the public treasury, getting all of these giveaways, you know, all of this crony capitalism. And I think both parties are in bed with them. In fact, I know that to be the case, but I think the Republicans are far more firmly in bed. And I think that is the fundamental problem and that needs to stop. You think that's the fundamental problem? It seems to me that while it's not good to have anybody able to rig the political system, that rigging it for individual voters is the most detrimental that there is. If you're rigging on behalf of business, what business does is create jobs. So the result is uh, the economy grows. But when you rig it, I just described what happens when you rig it for individual groups. You have, uh, first of all, this incessant racist divide that they've developed now, where they've got everybody at each other's throats based on skin color. It's the total opposite of that Martin Luther King quote, where all they do is call you a racist if you disagree with them. And they, de- they keep looking for new groups to, uh, I- to build this identity politics around all the time. But, but then, you know, Republicans, on the other hand, in the, in the name of clean elections, you know, systematically try to keep these same voters from voting. And not because not because they're black. I don't think Republicans are any more racist than anyone else, but because, you know, to gain partisan advantage. So this kind of stuff goes on, goes on all the time, certainly. Yeah, I, I would suggest that they are correcting that what Democrats have been doing for decades is changing the electoral system to make it easier for ignorant, uninterested voters to vote. They want you to be automatically registered, they want to be able to register illegal aliens and newcomers to the country who don't, aren't involved with our political system. So on Election Day, they can push them into buses and bring them to vote and rig election. So what I see Republicans doing is trying to correct a system that leaves big holes that uh, that kind of corruption can drive through. We've got 30 seconds left to wrap up. Well, elections aren't the elections are important, but what really happens, what really is important is what happens between the elections. And that's where the big money is winning. And that's what Republicans are letting happen. And that's why I'm a Democrat. All right. Keep in mind, big money winning means jobs. Special interest group voters means rigged elections. That's another conversation. All right. Michael Baranowski, thank you so much for being here. He's a political scientist and criminal justice professor at Northern Kentucky University. Check out his podcast. It's called The Politics Guys. So, Jay, what do you think about that? Uh, Todd Feinberg is my new hero. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I thought, I thought that, was, that was neat. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it, it was kind of funny because it, it was less about 
politics per se and more about you. Um, and, and this is, this is something that I've, I've contended for years. You're, you're more just a contrarian, uh, than, uh, than you are, uh, ideological. And, uh, while you were living up here in, uh, dark, deep blue Cleveland, uh, you were very much, uh, the, the firebrand conservative. And now that you're down in, uh, uh, red country in Cincinnati, you've, you've, uh, changed your tune, but, uh, uh, just as you were, again, you were a Steelers fan in Cleveland uh, for, for no ostensible reason other than uh, just to stick it to everybody else. But Well, you know, I, but, I, but I do think it's really important to emphasize, and you'll appreciate, you appreciate this, and some of our older listeners like us will appreciate this, is that it's hard to explain how fundamental the Cold War was in shaping political worldviews up until around 1990. And yeah, I mean, no, I think that's that's exactly right. And, and and let's, I mean, if you think about it, uh, because because literally the you know the the fate of the world was at stake. Yeah. Uh, if you grew up in the the eighties, uh, like like Mike and I did, um, you know, there was sort of this. I mean, you had this this fear that you might be the last generation of of uh, of the world. Um, and that, you know, and, and you're sort of doing college planning and then you're like, well, I should, maybe should I major in this or do this, or should I just kind of get ready for a post-apocalyptic Mad Max kind of, kind of world. Um, so yeah, that, that was a, a huge, uh, uh, piece of, of, of the way things were. And, and as you mentioned, and as, as Todd mentioned, there were sort of pretty easy lines of, of demarcation. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, it, it, that sort of. You know, you you can say that uh, uh, maybe the U.S. isn't perfect, and maybe the Soviets did some good things. Uh, I would say damn few, but um, there there was a a moral clarity there, Um, and uh, particularly in the Republican Party, and particularly under Ronald Reagan, Um, and I think that 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 drove a lot of other things. And and here's the other thing: I think for Republicans, the the idea of having of a, a socialist superpower out there. Uh, made the uh, helped broaden the appeal of of a free market economy, um, and I've 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 argued before in this today that a lot of these these uh, uh, youngsters who are are sort of you know turned on by Bernie Sanders socialism, um, you know maybe it's because they haven't seen sort of socialism in action uh, like uh, like we did back then, and you don't have those kind of examples. Um, Right. Well, so, I, I would make a distinction between communism and democratic socialism, but that's another that's another episode, certainly. But, sure. you know, and one one thing I wanted to I was frustrated because we kind of ran over to the end of our, you know, whatever, 12 minutes or something. But at the end, uh, uh, Todd makes this uh, argument about how big money winning means jobs. Special interest group voters means rigged elections. Now, obviously, the whole rigged elections thing, that would be another conversation, certainly. And uh, I, maybe one day Todd and I will be able to get into that. That would be great. I would say, to start with, that there's plenty of evidence that elections actually in the United States, believe it or not, are about as clean as elections are anywhere uh, and aren't really rigged. But again, another discussion. But also, I, what I would have said to him if we had more time is that big money winning sometimes might mean jobs, but it doesn't necessarily mean that because it also can mean things like jobs in other countries. It can mean easier bailouts for big banks and financial institutions with taxpayers getting the bill. It can mean less safe products. It can mean more fraud. It can mean a dirtier environment. I mean, uh, that, you know, it can mean uh, uh, 
less protection for, for people? Like, you know, the tobacco industry, certainly big money. Should we have rooted for them to win? And it gets down in, in, in no small part to the issue of externalities. I've talked about this, you know, a lot, certainly. We could do a whole externality show, in fact. And, this, you know, I think this is where I agree with a lot of the libertarian right when they're when they inveigh against crony capitalism i mean cato institute says you know well that that actually that struck me while you were talking about that that wow you you really don't sound like a democrat you sound like yeah one of these well yeah real I, I, capitalist yeah I, I really i sometimes i mean certainly i am not a you know a party line sort of nancy pelosi sort of sort of democrat and i think in part that's because of that history i went through you know and, and i i'd like to think that that gives me a somewhat different perspective and makes me at least a little more interesting in, in some of my positions. I don't know. But uh, anyway, I hope, I hope everyone enjoyed that, found it maybe enlightening. Maybe that explains a little bit about more <laughs> how I have some of the views that I have and, uh, and what shaped those views. So there you go. All right. I think that does it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you like what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsor, DaVinci, get a great office address with DaVinci. Go to davinciwork.com slash TPG and for a limited time, get 50% off your first per first purchase. You know, listener support is what keeps the show going, especially now that we're not relying on advertisers after this show. We truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you know what to do. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links there. And of course, if you want to support the show without spending anything. You can share this episode with your friends, followers, comrades, whatever, uh, or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Also leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes does really help. You want to get in touch with us? You, we're at mail at politicsguys.com. Also, there's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.